0: Episode of Surgeons' Lives. I'm your host, John Modson. My guest today is Dr. David Ratner, late of Massachusetts General Hospital. David is, of course, known around the world as one of the great innovators and contributors in the world of general surgery, president of SAGES, um, developer of technologies and new techniques, um, and a great mentor to many uh, young surgeons over many years um, you'll hear something about that and how he progressed his academic career um uh, in boston where he spent essentially all of his um uh, professional career but i think some of the more interesting things he uh, discusses in this uh, in this um, uh, conversation today is in relation to um passion and the workplace and um uh, concepts of retirement and when it's time to stop and issues such as that fascinating and uh, mature thoughtful reflections from somebody who's been there done that um, so i hope you enjoy um, my name is john monson and this is surgeons lives one more thing don't forget to uh, like and subscribe to the channel and check out the podcast uh, version If uh, your thing is to listen while at the gym or driving home, hope you enjoy um, this episode of Surgeons Lives. Hey, David, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Greetings. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining uh, our little soiree um, Mm -hmm. today, um, which we uh, very grandly called or I have very grandly called surgeons' lives, but the more important bit is the second line that says stuff that matters, which is not necessarily yeah. the CV. Um, although yeah. we use we use the CV as a little bit of a segue and to find out what is really uh, making the person tick. So thanks very much for taking the time to join. Um,
1: sure. Glad to do it. I, uh, I'm kind of living the dream these
0: days. Well, so... Um, you're going to have to tell me where the dream is currently located. (laughs) I'm in Boston right now. In Boston. (laughs) Okay. You're returning from, to the proper weather. I just, um, uh, somebody put a, a, um, a weather warning up on, um, on, uh, the web yesterday in Florida to say that, um. You shouldn't go out after 11 a.m. 11 until the 1st of November. <laughs> so.
1: yeah, you know, it's weird. Um, we bought a place in West Palm Beach, and I was actually down there end of July, early August, and the weather, frankly, was better than it was in Boston, which was very hot and humid at the time, but at mm-hmm. least we had a nice place. And, You know, if it rained an hour in the late afternoon, so be
0: it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, what I ask people to do, and I've interviewed people, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to see any of these on YouTube or anything like that, but I've interviewed, uh, I release these maybe every two weeks. um, And I've interviewed people from around the world and different specialties and one thing or another, but I always ask people to start, which I will ask you uh, if you don't mind, to start with the uh, words, uh, I was born in, and I, I don't mean what year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so, um, sure, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my father was a urology resident at the time. Yeah. And um, my early childhood was in Philadelphia, but we moved back to the Detroit area where my entire family is located and is from. Born and raised there. Um, went to University of Michigan, and then uh, came to the East Coast to go to medical school at Johns Hopkins. And I never went back to Michigan after that. Oh. Um, so I guess
0: the surgery or the medicine came from your dad or your family? I mean, was it a big medical family? or
1: No, not at all. Um, I actually tried to resist for quite a while. Um, I been to the hospital with my father as a young kid. Um, and I was kind of turned off. Um, but it when I was in college, it was the uh, times of the hippies, really, and the counterculture. And I had, I thought that business was inherently bad. Um, so yeah. I was attracted track to go to law school and actually participated in a um, famous case in Detroit where the police broke into a Republican New Africa meeting and shot everybody in this uh, meeting. It was an interesting trial, and I was sort of a, it's my senior project in high school. Uh, so I was big on the social ac- action um, front, and University of Michigan was a very liberal place, um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, but I just, um, I guess when I was about a junior, I kind of felt a calling to make sure I did something to to make the world a better place. And I wasn't sure lawyers were necessarily those people. It's good to
0: some
1: are, but uh, <laughs> you know, it was a very uninformed, you know, judgment that you'd have sure. as a nineteen year old person. Yeah. Um, and I ended up um, being fired as a camp counselor, needing to a job. And so my father got me a job as an orderly at uh, Sinai Hospital in Detroit, and I was holding hooks on surgical procedures. And I had a very uh, charismatic Mexican resident, you know, ECFMG, as they would say, Mm -hmm. who showed me how much fun surgery was. So I I was like, then I was sort of into it. Um, I had sort of hedged my bets because I took organic chemistry to get that out of the way. Um, and I actually loved chemistry it made sense to me Um, so the sciences were you know came pretty naturally I ended up being a biochem major and applied to medical school and then um,
0: uh, yeah I mean then the rest sort of flowed pretty naturally you didn't um, you know dabble with psychiatry or dermatology or internal medicine you always knew you were going to do surgery or or what
1: um, more, well, I mean, there were, there were sort of flirtations with the different specialties. I, I loved delivering babies. I thought it was the greatest thing that I ever did, but the thought of doing OBGON all the time, I just couldn't, I couldn't get myself there. Um, I liked medicine, uh, a lot, but I basically, you know, still I'm a frustrated athlete. I played sports all the way through college and there's something about the team aspect of surgery that I really enjoyed uh, I also at times might not be the most patient person in the world so uh, to be able to see your results and the impact that you have on people in surgery it's much easier than in medicine where it's a lot of chronic disease and um, so forth so that that's probably the factors that played into
0: it what was your uh what was your sport hockey ice hockey Ah, okay and, um, uh, did you, um, you, did you survive with uh, full levels of dentition? Yeah. Almost <laughs>
1: <laughs> a couple broken noses and a uh, little of this and that. and one
0: missing tooth that I've never
1: had replaced. But yeah. yeah, that was,
0: uh, of course that was in the era when, um, real men didn't wear helmets. So I was
1: uh, in the sort of the transitional phase we did uh, when I when I first started in the peewees we actually had leather helmets believe it or not right. uh, but they quickly transitioned to the Europeans were wearing plastic helmets yeah and by the time I was in high school we were all wearing helmets and by the time I got to college even face shields so
0: yeah it got that got to be better and um, you're do you do, you're still a hockey fan? Oh, yeah,
1: we 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 don't want to talk too much hockey this year. My team sort of fell on their face. So I was going to ask him, would
0: that team's first name be Boston?
1: Ah, uh, possibly, yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah, it's, it's um, I think there's a fairly widespread degree of mourning about that. but anyway, moving. So you did your residency. Um,
1: so I, I left
0: Hopkins and
1: I took a flyer. Applying to the MGH uh, for my surgical residency, I figured there's no way they're going to get, let me in, and and some of it went back to my medical school interview, um, and I think this is uh, people would be interested in this. Uh, well, I was I did fine at Michigan, um, I I did very well, and I was interviewed for Harvard Medical School, and it was almost like the movie The Paper Chase, where a guy with sort of pink glasses and a bow tie was talking to me, and he asked me. Uh, what the last book i had read was and i asked answered honestly i said it's uh, was childhood's end he goes who's that by I said, arthur c clark he goes is that some sort of science fiction or something and i said it is and at that moment in the interview i know i was probably not getting into harvard yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i always remind um tell people my friend who became a departmental chair in england um was interviewed in saint bartholomew's hospital um and he was not from london and none of his family were from saint bartholomew's or trained there and when the interviewer had exhausted the questioning as to which member of his family was in barts he asked him what his dad did and he said well he he, he's actually a painter and he said oh um is he landscape or or um or portraits? And he said, no, battleships <laughs> because he worked in a shipyard <laughs> and he he said he swears to this day that the rejection letter was on the same train as he was going back to Newcastle.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> at the end, it all I, I'll just skip ahead a little bit because um ultimately, I became a, a full Harvard professor, tenure professor, and Uh, You can't be promoted to full professor, it turns out, unless you have a lesser degree uh, from some Harvard institution. And since I didn't go to Harvard College and I didn't go to Harvard Medical School, they had to give me a master's in science from Harvard to make me a professor. So so I got that. I put it on my wall. And one day I was interviewing or talking to one of the residents who was a preparation H um, type of a resident. And she said, wait a minute. What's that on your wall? You didn't go to Harvard. I go, you're right. I didn't. But I, I bet you I got one up on you because I didn't go to a single class and I got my degree.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you listen to the interview I did with Robbie Madoff, um, you, you'll discover, um, which he's not been, he's never hidden that in when he was in Minnesota doing his residency and uh, he took a year off and the chairman was john Najarian and through one thing or another they f- they stuck him in the lab when he came back and then he went into fourth year and they forgot he hadn't done the third year <laughs> so he just completed his residency and they said oh never mind you know <laughs> right right well, so, life
1: is strange
0: yeah so there you were in um in uh doing your residency and um as they say, the rest is history, but, um, you know, how did that uh, transpire for you? Did you, uh, most people have some recognition of mentors at some point in their life. Um, did you have mentors and did you, was it something that you sought out or was it serendipitous? Um, I would have said it was organic, organic. Um,
1: one of the, the most surprising thing about a residency at Mass General at that point in time was it wasn't snobby, stuck up, or the things that I had imagined as an outsider. It was very difficult to get in. But once you were in, you were part of the family. Yeah. And um, many of the attendings, you would be able to call them by their first name. I mean, there was unquestionably a hierarchical structure. But it was, um, I mean, the philosophy at that point in time was, we got the eight interns we want. We're going to do everything we can to make them successful. It wasn't, um, and it was in contrast, frankly, to the whole study program at Hopkins. And it was yeah. one of the reasons we decided to go to MGH and not stay at Hopkins, which was a possibility. Um, and so, yes, you did get some beatings when you you did things poorly or you know you slipped up, but by and large, it was to make you the best that they could make you. Uh, figure out what you're really good at and sort of track you towards that. Now they seemed to have in their mind that I was going to be a cardiac surgeon, and I did uh, the senior res- senior cardiac senior residency as a third year resident rather than a fourth or a fifth. And honestly, it scared the bejesus out of me at first. But ultimately, I um, you know I learned to deal with it and cope with it. It was extremely stressful. But at the end of the day, it made me a much better um, surgeon in terms of dealing with adversity. Really, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know what, what the word we want to use here, but very difficult problems when the, when the you know the crap is really hitting the fan and you have to do something quickly and and do the right thing. Um, but I just, at that point, cardiac surgery basically had three operations you could either do a bypass or you could do a mitral, or you could do an aortic valve. There really wasn't a whole lot else yes. in 1981 or 82 going on. And the other thing about it is if you made a mistake doing a coronary, uh, the patient just flat out died and everybody knew uh, that there was a yeah. problem. I just didn't like that. I'm down to both George and Artie who was a very senior surgeon. And he was just a wonderful man and gentleman. And then Andy Warshaw, who was a bit of a rising star at that point in his career, but Andy and I saw the world in many ways the same way. And there was just an instant sort of a, uh, wow, we're on the same page, kind of a phenomenon. Who was the chair in
0: MGH at that time? Uh,
1: Jerry Austin. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Dr. Austin uh, Dr. Austin is a whole other story. And he, he through my career, was an incredible mentor incredibly supportive. Um, and he eventually, um, as I was finishing, uh, offered me a job and he offered me a job. He said, we want you to do some research and, uh, do some GI surgery. And, and, um, he was, uh, phenomenal in, in that sense. And for me, with my personality, uh, it was the right match. I didn't need someone writing me all the time and telling me what to do. He basically said, "I'll see you next year. Here's the money. Uh, we'll look look at what you did, and then we'll we'll go from there." And uh, sort of with some guidance from Andy, and with um, Dr. Austin providing that kind of um, I, I don't know. It was just the kind of freedom that I needed. Um, it, it worked. It worked.
0: So this me. was um, this was at a time before. You know the the transitional phases of general surgery into before laparoscopy and um, all of those things. Um, did you have, you know, what were, If I was to ask you, like in the mid to late '80s when you were, did you have an interest? What was your interest? What did you What did you think you you would be doing? Um, I thought I'd be doing a lot of gastric surgery and pancreatic
1: surgery. Okay. I was always into the pancreas and. And actually, uh, one thing Warshaw was doing was for diagnostic laparoscopy for pancreatic cancer. Yeah. He was one of the yeah. people in the States that was doing it. And that turned out to be critical for my ultimate
0: career. Because you knew how to put the ports in and have a look around. It's amazing the number of people... You know, I was talking, I did one of these with Barry Salke, who was the same story. And, I, you know, when I was in England um, as, a, as a resident, I worked with a guy who did just what you just been describing, diagnostic laparoscopy for ascites, liver masses, pancreas, etc. So when laparoscopy came along, all of us knew how to put the ports in and um, I had to look around and it was a big issue for a lot of surgeons, uh, general surgeons.
1: It's huge. I mean... But don't forget at that point in time, it was uh, big surgeons make big incisions and it was all about broad exposure. It was an entirely different way of thinking. Um, They didn't have the tools that we have now. So, you know, you have to put it back in context.
0: No, for sure. And, you know, it was all one hand because you were looking through the uh, uh, through the, you know, the camera with your eye, you know, etc. Did you um, and, you know, we'll. Will allow you claim it. Um, when you saw laparoscopy starting, did you immediately see that this was the thing, or were you a, you know, a, a late adopter, an early adopter, a luddite, any of those, somewhere in between? So
1: I owe my start to Carl, the late Carl Zucker. Uh, Carl and I were both doing pancreatic research. We were sort of little pancreas fledglings, and we were at the American Pancreatic giving a poster, I think, side by side. I knew him a little bit. And he said, uh, we were just chit-chatting. He said, you know, why don't you come down next week? I'm going to do something really crazy. It's going to blow your mind. I'm going to take out a gall letter with a laparoscope. I went and I saw Eddie Joe Reddick. Yeah. And I, I can do this. And we're going to do our first one. Why don't, you know, we would known each other a couple. Of why don't you just come down since, you know. So I did. I flew down to, um, I think it was Greater Baltimore Medical Center, if I remember correct. I'm pretty sure it was GBMC. Yeah. And um, I watched it and I watched him do a couple of cases. I think there was a laser company that was sponsoring it or something. Um, and I got on the plane back home and I called Andy and I said, Andy, we have to do this. And when I talk about having a good boss um, or mentor, um, Andy believed in me enough to know that I wouldn't go crazy. Yeah. And- Mm -hmm. he sort of agreed with it and jerry austin stayed out of the way and so shortly thereafter we did a couple you know we did a bunch of pigs actually and then uh, we did our first case which i don't know if it was the first in boston but it was pretty close if it wasn't and just from the reputation of mgh we got patients rapidly uh, and we were uh, you know off and running basically
0: yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I think that's a common story for people around that era. You know, I I was in England at the time and I wasn't sure. I couldn't understand how they were doing this um, in the very early days. And I got on a plane and walked to Dublin where the late David Boucher-Hayes was doing these. And I watched. As soon as I saw him do that case, I went, oh, yeah, okay, now I get it. Um, I just went back and, you know, there were no IRBs or any of that sort of stuff myself and ara Darcy was my um, fellow at the time and um and ara and i decided to start the laparoscopic program there um and we just went um slowly slowly and i remember when we wrote the paper on uh, colorectal stuff in 92 you know we just done a bunch of cases in no rational way so <laughs> We made it sound as though we knew what we were doing by, in the Lancet paper, we're calling it an all comers policy, which was our way of saying we just did everyone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's pretty scary if you think back, but I I think, um, you know, we opened when we had to open. I never uh, cut a bile duct. Uh, I was very lucky in that sense. And, you know, I think it was, and and I mean, just jumping ahead a little bit, it was so different. Uh, than when we tried to introduce notes um, in terms of the IRB and IRB. I mean, frankly, if the IRB existed at that point in time, I'm not sure we would have ever gotten off the ground with Lapp Coley. Um, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of horror stories and so forth, and we can debate that. Sure. It, it was sure. It was a question of being in the right place at the right time with the right networking, and then just being a rational, reasonable
0: human being and not being a cowboy. Yeah, I mean, I worked in a hospital in Leeds where um, there was a, a Romanian heart surgeon who'd invented one of the Shiley valves. Yeah. And he was a genius. He was crazy, but he was a genius. Um, but every one of those patients without the attempt at a valve replacement was going to die and right. did die. And so, you know, he just did case after case. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, they died. Um and he just kept going until, you know, as they say, the rest is history, you know, so that, you know, the heart surgeons ended up doing valves, grafts and take backs, you know, I mean, yeah. graph a valve surgery arose out of that, but it was certainly no randomized controlled trials at that stage, um, etc. Yeah. So when you were doing this, did you think you were going to be there for your career or was it just a did you see it as likely to be a stepping stone to greater fame and glory or, or what was your ambition or did you have a plan uh, my only plan or my only goal
1: really was to be a professor to, and if it was at harvard that would be great um, i really didn't have aspirations for some of the leadership things that happened um I didn't i didn't think that big it was more and the professor was in a sense a bit of a chip on my shoulder kind of a thing because i was a kid from the midwest who'd been turned yeah. down by harvard and i was going to just show them yeah um, you know sure. probably you had the same experience you, you'd be reading papers and journals and you go wait a minute i can do that <laughs> i could probably do it better than that yeah <laughs> so there was that there was that element but um no, I mean, I had a huge, uh, rapidly developed a huge uh, clinical practice, probably too big for some of the academic things I was being asked to do. And uh, then by reputation, that led to some leadership stuff. And then I had, after that, once I got on that track, then they sent me for more
0: training and so on. And so, uh, you know, it um, it just, as you said, it was organic in terms of the way you progressed um, at that point. Um I think so. I mean,
1: literally at that point, the the mentorship was so different than what it is today. Honest to gosh, I met with Dr. Austin once a year. Yeah. He spent half an hour talking about my family. He spent five minutes talking about how much he was going to pay me. And then the rest of the hour was sort of about different projects. Um, Andy was there uh, to bounce ideas off of, to help me network. Um, There's a fair amount of competition internally. Uh, people being jealous of your success, um, but other people who want to join with you and form small teams in a bigger um, unit. And so you have to navigate that. I didn't think that, frankly, that the internal politics at Mass General at that point were difficult or bad. I thought everybody had plenty of work to do. Everybody was kind of on their own P&L at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a tremendous amount of cross subsidization and it, the system seemed to work you know very well during those early
0: years. So, uh, I mean, I would normally ask this towards the end of an interview to to people, but um, you know, it seems appropriate to ask it now. I mean, the world then was very different to the world now. Um, in in, M, in no doubt in MGH and in almost every academic and indeed any institution. You know, what do you what's your sense as to you know the big the big changes. I mean, can you if you were to you know talking to a young mentee, you know between when you were a kid versus now. I mean, the bits that are good and the bits that are bad are there are there bits that you mourn for. I mean, obviously the ability to do what you did, yeah. um. But how do you think the it's fundamentally changed?
1: Well, first I'm going to uh, just couch this by saying I I am concerned about uh sounding like a grumpy old man every time i heard this i think that but i think the most fundamental and profound difference is this i think if you ask me at 35 years old david you know who are you i'd say i'm a surgeon at mgh Um, this is my wife barbara and uh you know i have a family or i like to ski i think if you ask most surgeons now um who they are they'd say, um, I'm Bob Jones, I'm married to so-and-so, we like to do this and this, and I work at Mass General as a surgeon. Um, and, I, I, um, and I'll just take the local situation to amplify that even more. Um, all of the uh, physicians are employed. Uh, morale is low at the moment. Uh, the residents here voted to unionize just recently. Yes. And I think that, um, in an elite institution that sort of strives to be at the very top, um, it, it's sort of a sign of, a, of um, lack of professionalism or frayed values of what physicians are really worth, what they really contribute to be viewed as just an employee and that they're replaceable and you can homogenize the mm-hmm. workers. Um, is a huge change for us. I mean, it was, um, the MGH was kind of a star system. It was kind of a decentralized entrepreneurial model. Uh, now it's entirely corporate. Um, so I, I think that's the change. Now the world has changed. The regulatory environment has changed. The reimbursement is probably not as good, even if inflation adjusted um, as it was uh, priorities of, you know, millennials and, uh, Gen Z, Gen X, their priorities are different and, and there's, I'm not going to place any sure. value judgments on one or the other. So the world is very different, but the one thing that is troubling to me is this issue of professionalism. Yeah. I think we've, we've, um, downgraded the importance we place on excellence and especially on elite performance in the name of, um, fairness equity uh a a variety of different um things so i I just think that i'm not on board necessarily with the way the list is prioritized at the moment and again it gets back to what's your mission what are you really trying to achieve so uh,
0: that that's where i see the yeah i think there's um i mean i you know grumpy old man you may be but you know you're not alone in that grumpy old man situation a lot of people that i interview have. You know bemoan some of those issues um you know and as you say you know if you look at what people um you know people don't leave institutions usually um for a simple salary hike you know they leave because and there's there's evidence for this i mean they leave because they don't feel valued right um and it's and it's not a, a salary issue i mean it in. You know, the salary is, is a prerequisite and is necessary, of course. But, you know, if you're only valued by your salary, you're permanently vulnerable to somebody tapping you on the shoulder saying, I'll offer you a $1,000 more. Um, You know, you, you don't, you and other doctors, and, and indeed the doctors today, you don't work the way you work, the above and beyond the call of duty because of money. You do it because, you know, that's really what I want to do. That's why I did this, you know the old phrase, the hackneyed phrase of, you know, if you want to work banking hours, join a bank. And I, I don't mean that people should be working all hours of the day and night, but it, you know, you're, it's called a profession for a reason. You know, yeah. it's, um, you know, the, you're doing it because you, as you say, you want to try and do the best thing. And it's, um, you know there there are life cycles in the way that things happen. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you that I think there are some aspects that um the priority list is a little is is a little uh, imbalanced
1: now, I think one one word, John, you didn't mention that i would I think is important is passion. Mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that in the current environment, there's enough, whether it's hassle factor, whether it's culture, but a lot of the joy is gone. I, I don't sense a lot of joy in people doing operations or seeing clinics of patients. And and I know when we trained there was joy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean I've often said to people, you know, I haven't spent 20 years in the UK, you know, working in the NHS, you didn't you sure as hell didn't do it for money and you didn't do it for resources and glamorous beeping machines. You know, people passionately believed in what they were doing, and they they really gave it their best shot. And and the deal was that, you know, everybody worked as hard as they could and did their best as they could for the patients. And the patients knew this, and the administration knew this, and there was no blame for, you know, and what happened subsequently over the last twenty years is that it's become a blaming issue. You know, the the resources are still not there. You know, the but, you know, we had fun when we were doing this because everybody knew you were trying to, you know, you worked your butt off, but you you really had fun doing it. And it was a team. And the big loss of um in the working hours thing was that team camaraderie. Because it's not fair on the resident being sent home at sixty-five hours in the UK, you know.
1: I couldn't agree with you more.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. So somewhere in this career, you developed this um, habit of dragging um, your golf clubs around the world with you. Um, So um, uh, when were you a golfer from your teens?
1: No. Uh, In fact, my father belonged to a country club, played golf, and I absolutely hated it and revolted. Um, And I think right before my uh, first child went off to college. My wife said, I've got a great anniversary present for her. And I said, what's that? She said, I signed us up for a golf school. And I go, I hate golf. What's the matter with tennis? She says, well, you always hit the ball back. And I said, is that a problem? I said, if you want, I can dump it in the net. I can, you know, do I hit it too hard? No, you just hit the ball back. And we have to have something to do together when the kids leave the house, we're empty nested. So, so I was probably late forties, um, and we went to golf school and because I was a hockey player it's not too dissimilar uh from hitting a slap shot really mm-hmm. so I took to it um I also was at that point getting tired of playing tennis I, I was slowing down mm-hmm. um, I just move as fast and I just found myself daydreaming while waiting for someone to serve to me and stuff like that and when I started to play golf it was so difficult that it was the only thing that took my mind off of surgery or whatever problem I was dealing with administratively. So I would not take a phone. I did not even take my beeper. And for three hours, I could just be in my own world. Mm. Uh, and I sucked. Uh, but eventually it got better. And uh, so yeah, I, I enjoy it. And
0: it's a great way to meet people. And yeah, you're right. I have played around the world now. Other than, other than, the, um, other than the wind and the rough, what is your handicap? Do you have a handicap? Yeah, it's
1: uh, it's bouncing around between ten and twelve right now.
0: And um, I mean, I, I guess it would be appropriate for me to say you know, we were just talking about the world has changed in the way healthcare is delivered. The world has suddenly changed recently in the way golf is about to be delivered with them. Um, this, you know, with with them um, people walking around looking at other people saying, but you just lied to me last week.
1: <laughs> no, well, money, money talks. I mean, if you want, I can send you an interesting um, sort of uh, deconstruction of the deal and why it really happened and so forth. It's, it's not what the press reported.
0: Yeah. Money talks, as you say. Um, and um, I do, I, I think I heard Rory Michael um, pointing out that um you know, if you're dealing with if you're competing against somebody that has a totally unlimited budget, you know that's not going to go well <laughs> in general. In general, no, that, principle, right. you know, right?
1: It's uh, they were just going to keep you know litigating and litigating them until the PGA
0: ran out of money. So yeah, exactly. So now, um, Jim Fleshman has a a bucket list of to attend a game at every baseball park in Major League in the USA. And, and Barry has some crazed, um, crazed ambition over golf courses in countries, etc. Do you have a bucket list for golfing, or just do it whenever possible?
1: Uh, well, actually, one of the things I found when I retired is it, it is possible to play too much golf, and um, so I, I I limit myself to three times a week now. I just I don't enjoy it if I play more. Yeah. Um, you know, un- unfortunately, I'll admit to you know my body is changing, and I'm not. I just don't bounce back from injury as quickly as I used to, or I get uh, repetitive use injuries that I never had. So you have to pick and choose. It also is, you know, it's a hard game. And um, if you bo- if you actually still hold on to the belief that you can improve, um, it can be very frustrating. I still think I can get better. Yeah. Um, it is frustrating, so I try to limit it. Uh, is, and no, my pro, I, it's, I have really three or four priorities uh, which I knew before I retired. That One was to be much more knowledgeable about literature and American history. And so I went back to school and I basically take Shakespeare courses, literature courses and history courses uh another was to get in better condition physically than i was able to when i was working so hard and i think i've succeeded in, in at that and then to see if i could be a better golfer or not and i'm better than when i was still working but i'm not i once got down to single digits but i'm having trouble getting back there right now and then um then to spend as much time with my grandchildren as i can and i, I can honestly say i spend more time with my grandkids than i spent with my own kids so i love yeah. it I, it's life is
0: good i'm married it's to my him. um it's you know a great um, aphorism sent given to me by a friend many years ago, which I trot out um, regularly. Which is you know surgeons are usually better grandparents than they are parents. You know, um, and so and I think there's some truth to that. So I you know I ask people um, retirement uh, questions. You know what triggers them? What are they? And of course I'm asking people who tell me. Interviewing people, who tell me, no, I, I don't. I think I see myself working till I'm eighty, um, uh, or whereas I'm talking to you know Robbie Madoff, who said, okay, I'm done in three months, I'm out of here, and I don't, you know, I go to the opera and stuff like that. And, you know, Jeff Matthews said to me, you know, I think you know people should start looking at cognitive measurement after sixty or sixty-five, and Barry, as I'm sure, you know, as uh, you know, you know, had. Always had a deal with a friend who would, you know, whose whose arrangement was: you'll tell me if you think I need to stop. You know, what do you? What are your thoughts generically about retirement? You know, do you think surgeons should should be operating when they're eighty four? Um, do you think they should step aside and let somebody else have a go, or or what?
1: I don't know that there's um, a blanket answer. I think we're all wired differently and we all age differently. Aging doesn't occur at the same rate in everybody. Um, you know, I, I can't really speak for, I can speak for myself and that's that the joy was leaving me. Um, I was, as you get more well-known and you know this even better than myself, your referrals change. Um, I was doing redo esophagectomies, fourth time perisophageal hernias, big open cases, and you know the results were good. Um, but I'd come home in the evening and I'd sit down for dinner and I'd just look across the table at my wife and I literally couldn't talk. I just didn't have anything left in the tank. I didn't have anything to say, and my back would bother me a little bit. And then I'd be, you know, seven thirty in the evening board meeting, and the next night I'd be out to recruit another surgeon or something. And it just, it just wasn't fun, and and the um, and it was intense. I also found that when I was in a stressful situation, uh, I didn't fall back to sleep easily. So mm-hmm. I could tell that that, by, that part of my brain biology uh, was going a little bit. And I had I had this list of things I wanted to do at and I had, uh, from the beginning, had a financial planner that I was working with so that I could retire at 62 um, because I knew I wanted to do all these things. And every time I sort of mentioned this, I got an increase in my pay and I got a, a new title or something. And so it was a bit of the golden handcuffs, but um, eventually it just was enough, was enough and I needed to move on before because I felt I was in a race against biology um, in terms of the physical things on my bucket list that I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, a, a friend of mine said to me, you know, you should retire when you have enough and you've had enough. Um, and that, you know, those are the measures. If one of those isn't right, um, you know, maybe it's not the time for you. But, um, and that is, as you say, different for different people at different times for all sorts of reasons. And sometimes there are external reasons, you know, 401ks collapse and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think you
1: know one of the things I see is people who keep going because they don't have a whole lot of outside interests hmm. and uh, they're very frightened about what are they going to do when they wake yeah. up and there're no cases on the schedule and you see yeah. them hanging around at the doctor's dining room and and it's kind of sad to me
0: very and we all know you know uh, legendary figures um you know who suffered from that and and it, and, and I have to say, in my experience, it rarely ends well, um, you know, because um, they don't have somewhere to go. And I've seen sometimes male or female, their spouses struggle because they also were defined by being the spouse of the important surgeon. Um, and it's, um it's, it is a struggle. I mean, you know, if you're... um. If if you collect um you know comic books or something, it's um it's just as important as spending silly amounts of money on cars that break down, et cetera, and stuff like you know it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, what it is, it's a matter to keep your brain alive, you know, as much as I anything mean, else.
1: I think that's the issue. I mean, it's it's sort of when you're working as a surgeon or you're an administrative. You, there's a every day. There's a reason you got out of bed and there are two or three things you got to fix and deal with. And all of a sudden that goes away and you you need to redefine yeah. what, who are you, you know, it, you're thrown into. And, all, and the other thing is you meet all these other retired people and they don't give a damn who you were before. No, I mean, yeah. you're starting fresh and, um, and you can drop the titles now. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, no, for sure, that's mm-hmm. absolutely true. So I, I, you know, I normally ask people a, sort of a double header question. You know, one is, you know, how would you like to be remembered, and how do you think you will be remembered? Um, do you, do you have an, an easy answer for that?
1: Well, I, I'd like to be uh, remembered as someone who was um, honest, accountable, integrity, uh, hardworking, uh, good guy. That's, that's fine for me. I don't care about how many citations I get. Because whatever I did is going to be, you know, three decades from now, I'll be
0: completely out of date. Exactly. They will be asking the question, were there two Ts in the name? Yeah. You know, I mean, they don't remember how you spell your name six months after you're gone, you know, <laughs> et cetera. Something like that. Um, and, um, you know, some people end up being remembered for what they want. And I have to say my experience with interviewing people um, um, at your stage of career is the overwhelming number of people that say, I'd like to be remembered as a good person. You know, the younger ones are often saying something a little more detailed and technical, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you realize that, you know, I think you're right. It's about integrity and being a good person. Um, but it isn't of course, necessarily what people are remembered for, you know, I mean, for example, I'm sure Eddie Joe Reddick may or may not have been a very good person, but he'll always be remembered for one thing, you know, which is, you know, introducing gallbladders, a laparoscopic a cholecystectomy, et cetera. Um, what advice would you, um, I mean, you've, you have a realistic, um, uh, appraisal of the surgical profession, the medical profession over a career, of, you know, at the center of it. Um, if you met a young graduating medical student, would you advise them to do surgery or would you say, go west, young man, and never look back?
1: Uh, I tell them essentially what I told you earlier. It, you have to have passion for it. I think one of the big mistakes that's been made or being made is, and probably... I mean, I can't prove it. I have a hunch it may have related to the work hours restriction that all of a sudden surgery was no different than medicine. I mean, they both were limited to 80 hours. And it so all this idea of, you know, beating your brains out during this intense residency was no longer true and that surgery would be easy or training and surgery would be easy. It's not true. Being a surgeon is is hard on you and you have to have the Uh, emotional or mental constitution to deal with failure and to take criticism and to improve I think Mm. Uh, and um, not everybody has that and and I think also if you're not willing to make some sacrifices you're going to be very ordinary Um, so you have to have passion it has to be fun and if it isn't fun for you and you're looking for you know if you want a job then it's probably not right for you um if you want to have dramatic impact on people but also hold the bag when things don't go well then you can it's going to be great and you're going to be with wonderful colleagues and you'll do great things so um I, I think that's the that's the test it's don't fool yourself that it's easy but it's highly rewarding if you put the work in
0: so if i was to ask it another way around um any regrets no, I, I just feel so fortunate that
1: things that things that happened to me happened. Um, I'll uh, just one more anecdote, which crystallized things for me. When I was, uh, in my late forties, it was right after I started to play golf. I, I was I'm an expert skier and I, I took a, a fluky little fall on an easy trail, ended up with a fractured dislocation of my shoulder and a very bad brachial plexus injury. Mm. Uh, completely paralyzed, um, had uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy and terrible pain. And I had an EMG and they said, well, you know, we're not sure you're ever going to recover, blah, blah, blah. So during that, I mean, for example, I couldn't put my shoes on. I couldn't tie a tie. I couldn't cut a piece of meat. Um, wow. And during that, time i ended up writing and and getting funded for the largest grant i ever got i think it was a 12 million dollar grant so i was incredibly productive academically um and in about three months things started to come back but i realized at that point and and really the happiest day of my life still to this day one of them was the day i walked in and did an operation with matt hutter with me one-handed and telling matt what to do he was my fellow at the time, I'll never forget. Um, and it crystallized to me, you know, what it meant to be a surgeon and, and how central that was to my identity. I mean, it was great to be famous and get all this money from the NIH, but frankly, it didn't make me nearly as happy as the surgical identity. And it that rocked me out of my midlife crisis. It made me uh, appreciate how uh, quirky or Capricious or spontaneous life could change and be with no fault of your own, um, and it made me appreciate every good day even more. And and since I retired, honestly, I just try to every day suck the most out of it that I can and enjoy it. And if I have a chance to leave the world in better shape, one way or another, I try to do that too. But it 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 just it gets to the point of you know why why are you a surgeon? What is your identity? And you know. I feel unbelievably fortunate to have had the opportunity.
0: Well, it's good to hear. And it's, as you say, life is fleeting, unfair, transient, and can turn on a, on a, on a dime for you, um, uh, uh, for sure. So in the last minute or two, um, these are just um, some pretty standard questions that I ask people for which there are no uh, no correct answers other than the fact that clearly I know what the correct answer is. Um, and so, um, we'll fly through them. Are you ready? Fire away. Okay, baseball or football? Uh, football. Um, McDonald's or Burger King? Neither. Cats or dogs? Uh, dogs. PC or Mac? PC. Beetles or stones? Stones. Wine or beer? Mm. Both. (laughs) Home or away? Uh, Away. Um, Beach or mountain? Mountain. (laughs) David, thank you very much for um, spending some time. It's been great fun. And um, it's been a real joy um, to talk to you. Um, I haven't talked to you for quite some time um we let these things emerge into the freedom into out of captivity or i do um about every two weeks i'll let you know um (laughs) uh, and um um hopefully people will um will enjoy it so thank you very much okay good luck on your next road trip
1: and if you come over (laughs) to the other side of florida in my way let me know i'll be there you know through the winter and fall winter spring